From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the internet. Ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. We're glad you're here with us this week. Have our guest in the studio today, Blake Wilson from Dominion Strength, the guys who make starting strength belts. And we're going to have a long, detailed, boring, horrible discussion with him about <laughs> belt manufacture and leather and everything that you want to know. And as usual, we start with comments, comments from, from the, the haters. haters. This week, we have a particularly lovely crop of comments from the haters. This, most of this, I think, is from the uh, Stan Efforting video that ran a while back. And uh, we got, uh, let's see, Eric Miranda says, I'm not an expert, but after analyzing this video and all the contents, I cannot say anything because, as I said in the beginning, I'm not an expert. Thanks. This is the most sensible comment that I have ever read in YouTube comments (laughs) anywhere, anytime, about anything. So, really, he's not a hater, is he? Okay. Here's one. Nick Baker says, both of them have lobster hands. For some reason, they have the inability to move their four index fingers separately. You hear that? Four (laughs) index fingers separately. (laughs) And are only able to make a pincer-like movement with their thumbs. Rip wins on the lobster look-alike scale, though, since his hands and forearms look like they came out of a Soviet nuclear power plant, but his upper body is like a 98-year-old overweight grandma. (laughs) Oh, God. Here, Nick. Okay. Angel of Cake says... I don't think Mark has lifted for 20 years. He looks like he has the nice soft hands of an office worker who moisturizes, no, who moistures a lot. Now, I have never, that's the first time I've ever heard that I had soft hands. Angel, sweetheart, I can caress you and show you that they're not soft. Come see me, okay? And Audio Ventura says, now this is a good one, all right? I I love this. I only have the outmost respect for both Stan and Rip, but why in the hell would order this whatever it is, it's not food, mash stuff? If you have problems with calories, just make a sauce Hollandaise with your steak, that ought to do it. 
don't know if this is an American thing, but as a half French, half German, I would never even think about ordering, let alone eating something like this. It's it's utterly cultureless, if this word exists. (laughs) Oh, shit. The bottom 3%. Comments from the haters. Now, Blake, thank you for coming from where in the hell ever it is that you live in Florida. Edgewater, Florida. And uh, right there where Dorian just tried to come through and wipe us out. Did you watch that or what? Well, we had several different plans depending on what was going to happen. It looked like we might get hit, you know, directly by a Cat 4, Cat 5 hurricane. Yeah, it could have happened. We had plans to leave Florida. We had plans to possibly hole up at the shop, which is a few miles off the coast. Uh, We ended up the day that it actually, that it would have made landfall had it done so. Uh, we went west over to, um, uh, and now I'm going to forget the name. What's the name of that? Lakeland. 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 Thanks, I've heard of Lakeland, Florida. Yeah, it's I don't just know over on the west coast. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so that's what we ended up doing. But we got lucky. Right. We we dodged a bullet on that. We didn't well, have any. Did. Yeah. Is the shop reinforced for hurricanes? Eh, I don't know that it's reinforced. It's well, built to withstand. Why don't you reinforce it? Blake, you bonehead. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's Florida. There's hurricanes. Well, I'm a renter, so. <laughs> oh, oh, I see. It's not yours. <laughs> I was told it was rated to 140 miles an hour, so all we did, we that got three like, roll-up doors there. That sounds like bullshit. Two of them are east-facing, so we barricaded those. Right. Because that would be the worst-case scenario, I thought, would be to have a door blow in and then oh, God. have days and days. All and that days. inventory screwed up. It, oh, that yeah. all got pushed into the middle of the shop and top tarps right. over everything and all, over up all the, the equipment. Up off the floor and everything. Everything up off the floor. Right. Yeah. So we, we prepared as, as good as uh, we thought we could, and then well, good. Ended up getting I'm, lucky. We're all happy that you you didn't get blown around and flooded and wet and everything. Uh, so, Blake, tell us about uh, uh, how long you've been in the weightlifting belt business and how you got into it. Uh, well, I got to say this is pretty much all your fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I didn't know anything about weightlifting belts until uh, I heard a podcast with you on it. Uh, at the time, I was doing CrossFit, and uh, I realized I did not have the same motor that some of those people do to do Metcons and stuff like no. that. But people that could you know, whoop me pretty handily at that... I could be stronger than them when we do the weight training right. portion of the Once every six workout. weeks when they squat. They, right. You were, you were so, stellar at that. I don't know that I was stellar, but I, I realized maybe there'd be some room to specialize in that as opposed to getting into Metcons and everything. So, But continuing to do CrossFit then is not really ideal because I just wanted to lift weights. I don't care about all the extra cardio and everything. Um so I started poking around and actually found you randomly, I think, on uh, Mike Matthews' podcast. I know you had him on a couple times. We uh, just had Mike on recently yeah. here on on our on our actual podcast. I've done several audio-only Skype podcasts with Mike. In fact, I'm going to do another one next month. And he and I have gotten to be buddies. And uh, uh, 
you probably heard the one about back injuries, I bet. No, uh, no, that was kind of recent. Couldn't have been that. I wonder No, it was it was probably uh three three ish years ago. Might have been when I heard heard this. Might have been. Might have been uh, our first one we did. Yeah. But it was the first time I'd heard of starting strength and heard of Mark Ripito, and I was like, all right, well, this guy is at least funny as hell to listen to. Let me see what else he, <laughs> he talks about. And so I went down the rabbit hole of the Starting Strength podcast. Uh, at the time, you had done uh, – we were actually living – Katie and I – Katie's over there for moral support. Say, hey, Katie. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we were living in Decatur, and there was a Starting Strength affiliate gym there that we found out about through your podcast. Decatur, Georgia. Decatur, Georgia. Right. Yeah. And uh, going there, getting some, uh, you know, proper coaching, going through a, an LP, um, we pretty quickly realized, you know, we need a belt, you know, after several weeks into this. And so we started asking around, you know, who makes good belts? Where do you buy these things? Of course, there's a bunch on Amazon, but you kind of sure, assume those are, that's all junk. those are overseas pieces of junk. <laughs> so the names we would get, we would look at these companies and say, well, you know, if you're going to get a nice belt, it's going to be made to order. It's mm-hmm. going to take you six weeks, eight weeks, something like that to get it. Right. Why isn't there just an option where you can buy a good belt now? Maybe there's limited options, you know, one right. color, something like that. <clears throat> and, you know, my background uh, is in mechanical engineering. I was working for an engineering company at the time, and I would source a lot of different products just in, in my everyday job. So I thought, well, you know, heck, maybe... Maybe I could come up with something that could be sourced. You know, maybe it could be made cheaply enough that we could sell them. You know, at the very least, maybe we can get one made for ourselves. And uh, the gear started turning. Um, there's a lot of steps from here to there. That was, uh, I guess, right about three years ago now right. that, that all that started. And we started getting samples in and everything. And uh, one thing led to another. And now we're making the belts ourselves down at our own shop in Edgewater, Florida. Right. So, well, I think, uh, you know, you've probably talked to our buddy Dean best. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dean makes a damn good belt. He and I have uh, talked about this quite a bit and he's just backed up. He's, if you want a suede belt, I always recommend Dean. He's, he does a great job, has a fabulous product. I know that you've talked to Dean several times and you guys are on good terms and everything. Mm-hmm. And, and what you're doing is a completely different thing. Dean is it takes a while to get product out of him. He's a small he's a small shop and uh does things his own way and makes a real high quality product, but there's a market for something that's got a little faster turnaround time than that. And uh you guys have stepped up and filled this hole in the market quite handily. And uh the uh the the, fi- the finished product is just laying here on the table. This is the two ply starting strength belt. This thing retails for one seventy five. And how long does it take you to get this order filled? Uh, we'll ship all of our orders out within a week. Ship them within a week, and in the U.S., you'll get it in two to three days. Priority mail right. doesn't take any time. So, from the time you place the order, um, you know you're looking at less Should than be two no weeks. longer you'll, than ten days. Yeah, really. ten days. You'll you'll have it in your hands. Right. And a lot of these, you know, now that we know what sells the best, we'll keep a lot of those in stock. So there's right. plenty of people that'll order a belt. It'll go out the next day. Right. Or even the right. same day. It's not some, a, if it's not an instances. oddball. Right. right. But uh, 
The starter strength belt, there's just two variety, two versions of it. The one you see on the on the table here is the two-ply belt. And we're going to talk more about this in detail in a minute. And uh, we're going to talk about leather and how these are made and what they're made of and how leather is sourced and all this stuff. But this is the single-ply version of the starting strength belt. This is a lot cheaper. This is a lot lower price point. This this is what? 85? Uh, I think we got it for 90. 90. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, this is a this is a top quality product. If you'll look at the rivets, they're nice big fat rivets that do not come loose anytime you see a belt with little bitty teeny yeah. ballpoint yeah. pin size rivets. Yeah, these are industrial Those, rivets. They have a tension and a shear rating that'll never be tested right. <laughs> on one of these belts. And the little ones pull out. Yeah. They always pull out. You well, will you will not use one of those belts for any length of time and the thing not destroy itself. So these are some of the some of the features of the starting strength belt. This is a two ply. And once it breaks in, it's very, very comfortable. It's tight, provides a lot of hoop tension. Those of you that have read my article uh, about the belt and the deadlift, understand how the belt works. If you haven't read it, you'll save yourself some time. Just stop the podcast right now. Just push the little button in the middle. Go read the article and then come back, and we'll wait on you. <laughs> Welcome back. Now, these things are going to do what a belt is supposed to do, and they do it nicely they do it with class they do it they're beautiful pieces of workmanship and uh let's talk about what goes into these two things all right uh let's talk about the easy one first what is this single ply belt made out of uh this is made out of a type of top grain leather called sole leather uh, and it's cut from the uh, the bend which is a section of the hide that you know runs along the backbone of the animal i guess first maybe the best thing to do would be back up and yeah, talk let's about back the, up and talk about the grades of leather and this yeah. is a top grain this is a top grain so you can think of uh the cowhide as basically three separate layers so the the outermost layer is called the full grain and that's got all of the you know imperfections so you've you got know. a cross section of hide maybe this thick yeah maybe an inch thick maybe a little more a little and less really an yeah. inch thick yeah the hide on the back of a steer, especially on the back of a bull, is very, very thick. It's that way for protection from the elements, from fights, from ornery creatures jumping on his back <laughs> in the middle of Africa, that sort of thing. Right. And uh, people are surprised at how thick leather is, how thick the section of the hide is yep. that comes off an animal. It's very, very thick. And uh, it's thickest along the spine at the shoulders. Mm -hmm. That's where it's thickest. Yeah. In fact, if you'll remember back from your history lessons, the Indians used to make rawhide, buffalo rawhide shields. Remember this little target sized shields mm -hmm. out of the, the shoulder hide of a buffalo. Mm -hmm. And when those things were they would cut those things to shape from that piece of hide and they would dry them and they'd shrink and contract and you had a piece of material 
that was an inch and a half thick that would turn a bullet if you were yeah. clever enough to get it in the way. <laughs> that's the trick. <laughs> that's the trick. <laughs> Putting it between you and, right. and, the, and the bullet. Yeah. Uh, so people aren't familiar with how thick that hide is. But right. So the, what it, the, the first layer is called... That's the full grain. The full grain. Yeah, so the, the tannery is going to get the hide in, and they're going to first split that full grain layer off, and they're going to take a look at it. If it's a really high grade, so there's not a lot of imperfections, defects, it's just got a nice natural grain, or they can tell that it will have a nice natural grain after the tanning process, right. it'll go on and, and just become um, something usually called like aniline leather or something like that. It's going to be like the highest-end couches, handbags, Stuff like that are made from that full grain leather, and this Very, is where they want to show the texture of the. Yeah, they they want that the, actual the leather pores green. and the 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 right. obvious surface features that are on a piece of leather. This is called right. full grain. Full grain. So if you see full grain cowhide, right, this is the top layer of the skin. Right, and and the times where they just take it and put you know a transparent dye or something like that. It's very rare. I've read that only a few percent of hides, like maybe about 3% of all hides, can be done in that manner uh, just because there's so many imperfections that you'll have in a hide. And what are imperfections? Yeah. Scratches from yeah, fights scr and holes? Scratches, and... warts, scars, right. branding marks. Right. Um, even even just pleasantries. Yeah, even just damage that happened to it after it was taken off the animal, mm -hmm. you know, just in transport and everything. Um so that's that's the top grain leather. Now something about the top grain leather and the next layer, I'm sorry, the full grain and the top grain, which is the next layer down, is they have the same um, uh, I guess you'd call it uh, fiber structure. Mm -hmm. So so both of these layers have fibers that are very densely <clears throat> packed, very tightly woven together, and they make a very durable product as a result. So it's something that's not going to wear out and break over time. It's going to wear in and just develop character and, and things like that. Um, there's one more layer down that after the full grain is split off, after the top grain is split off, you have something that's just called split leather. And this is down the hide far enough so that those fibers are no longly, longer as densely packed. Mm -hmm. um, they're both further apart and less intertwined. So you've got something that is very flexible, um, but is not going to have near the durability that a top grain product is going to have. So they take the split leather and they make uh, suede out of it, garment upholstery type so stuff. So it's it, inherently more flexible. Inherent, inherently more flexible, um, but for a weightlifting belt, not really the uh, the material you'd want to right, use. Right, because it's also, in addition to being flexible this way, it's also stretchy. Right. And we, when we wear a belt, we wear it for the specific purpose of not yielding to pressure. Yeah. Like, it, the only thing I haven't done is, you know, send a sample off to a lab and have them do like an Instron pull test of a cross-section of this versus a cross-section of the split to see what that tensile strain would be for mm -hmm. a given load. Um, just from holding pieces in your hands and moving them, mm -hmm. it, it's got to be an order of magnitude at least because this yeah. stuff – is, is, is not noticeable but a split you can stretch right um so to recap we have full grain which is when layer. you when you want the visual effect of the of the pores and the surface features of a natural height right then you have the top grain 
which is the same structural density as the full grain, but with a, a smooth, even finish like this because it is a, it's a cut. Right. From yeah, there, out of there's the been a layer split off of that. The layer yeah. taken off, and right. then you have the split, which is the mm-hmm. flimsy stuff that we're not interested in for belts. Right. Which uh, is not to say people don't use it on belts. And a lot of those cheap belts that you'd find on Amazon mm-hmm. or coming from overseas, they make them out of that split leather uh, because it's cheap. Right. You know, right. It, it's very inexpensive. And it probably work for a month. <laughs> yeah, so. it might, or until you got yeah. up to 135, yeah. you know. <laughs> uh, and I wonder if perhaps split leather was the reason that people started making belts in two and three ply. I, I don't know. Be. It just occurs to me that maybe that was their answer for having to use cheap materials to make a belt out of there, there are definitely belts that do that. Um, like one of our belts we have is uh, it has this same piece of leather on the inside and then suede on both sides. Just mm-hmm. a standard double suede belt. Right. And we don't put any edge paint on it or anything. We like to see that nice leather edge and stuff. Mm-hmm. Other manufacturers will take a piece of split leather, substitute it in for the top grain, put the suede on it, edge paint it, and then they'll go in and dye the holes and inside the buckle area brown so that you wouldn't know or unless you cut really? into it, you wouldn't know that uh, you didn't actually have what you thought you had. How about that? Very clever of them, huh? Well, we outsmarted them. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs> what now? You mentioned sole leather. So we we go from terminology that that involves the description of the source of the leather from the from the hide, right? To end purpose of the leather. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. So sole leather is what? Uh, shoe sole leather. So this was originally developed to be durable enough to be worn on the bottom of your foot. You walk around on it all day on whatever, and it's going to hold up. Uh, and now, it's top grain usually, right? It's top grain. Uh, all shoe sole leather is going to be top grain. You can't make it out of a, a split. Right. Um, and what makes it? sole leather then is the tanning process that happens after we split this into the three layers and and do any other you know pre-processes to it right um sole bend in particular uh goes through a process after sole bend is that another it's synonymous with the it, it ends up being used interchangeably because typically the the cut of the hide that the sole leather is made from is the bend um so people and where's the bend the bend runs down the back oh, of the animal. Right. Yeah, right. you right. mentioned that. Yeah, right along the spine. Up, up high, up down, high. down the flank toward yeah. the posterior of the animal. Right. That's called the bend. Yes. Okay. And that, that term just ends up being used interchangeably when you hear shoe sole leather, sole bend. Okay. People say that. Right. You can make sole leather out of a shoulder. It's just people tend not to do it right. for whatever reason. Um, it's probably too thick. It could be. It could be too thick, and I guess if it's it's got to have some sole leather, must have some degree of flexibility, or you couldn't walk into things. Yeah, and that's another part of the tanning process <clears throat> where they make this in different tempers. They make firm, they make semi flexible, they make flexible. So, so for for this guy, just part of the process that makes it shoe, shoe sole leather is the compression 
that they do to it after it's tanned. So where the, the fibers were already extremely densely packed, they're now even more so. How do so, they do that? So they'll run it through some rollers that compress the material. Or so it's actually it it's press. actually mashed. It's mashed flatter, together. Yeah. Right. And right. and they'll pack they'll pack and oils it stays and, mashed. Yeah. You can make yeah. it denser with the pressure. Is that right? That's that's one of the properties of uh, you know leather that is vegetable tanned, which mm-hmm. sole bend is, is that it will take a set. So if you stamp it or something like that, it will be permanent. Or if you just compress the whole thing. As far as you can compress it, it'll right. hold that set. So temper refers to the flexibility of the finished leather. Correct. Yes. And it comes in uh, three or four different grades. Yeah. You mentioned. Firm, firm, semi-flexible, and flexible are the ones I've seen. Depending what is on this? this is semi-flexible. Semi-flexible. Yeah. Why don't you use flexible? Um, I think it would be too flexible. The the. The one thing about especially uh, this belt, the, the single ply, there's nothing to protect this piece of leather from breaking down at all. Mm-hmm. So I think going with something that is going to have a more dense fiber structure from the beginning would be better for this belt than mm-hmm. to go. because In terms it, of lifespan. Yes. Because, yes, it is more flexible, but that's also going to give rise to other properties. It's not just more flexible, but the same strength and tension. It's going to be weaker in tension as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I guess you so, give up one for the other. Yeah. Right? Yeah, there's no there's no free lunch there. Um, so, you know, after trying them, the semi-flexible has just turned out to be, seems to be the best one for mm-hmm. what we're doing. Okay. Sole leather is an example of, of a type of... Uh, of a term for the end use of the product. What are some other examples of that? Uh, as the, as far as the tanning process? No, is as far good. as the, the, this is for soles. Uh-huh, it's for shoe soles. Would you have luggage leather? Would you have sure damp um, leather for the top part of the shoe? Yeah, you could you can make, uh, you know, whatever type of leather you want. There's um, the, a lot of them are named for different parts of uh, like saddlery that they'd be used for. Mm-hmm. So you have skirting leather, you've got harness leather. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got, like you were saying, there's a upholstery layer leather, there's suede. Yeah, tooling leather. Tooling leather really just refers to uh, any type of uh, vegetable tan leather that can be- it Can be embossed. Can, and can be embossed or carved. Right. This is, and you'd mentioned earlier, vegetable tanned. How many different tanning processes are commonly employed, and what are the terms for those? There's two major ones. Uh, the vegetable tanning is the oldest. Um, it probably came about the first time humans killed an animal and then started trying to figure out what to do with the skin. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably came across it you know, by accident, the fact that you could soak this in tree bark tannins and, 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 have, and some other salts and have it be cured into something that doesn't become rawhide, it stays flexible, but it also right. doesn't rot. Right. Um, so vegetable tanning now just refers to- rawhide, let's explain. Rawhide. Rawhide, rawhide, rawhide would just be if you took the hide off the animal and let it dry. Just let all the moisture yeah, dry you, out you, of it. You took it off, scraped it, scraped all the hair off of it, yeah. scraped all the flesh off of it, and it, mm-hmm. looks, it looks like it's flinty, it looks like parchment, mm-hmm. semi-transparent, so it's right. translucent, and if it's not too thick right and it's 
absolutely rigid, doesn't give at all. And you've heard the right. term, you people have heard the term rawhide. Rawhide is not leather. Rawhide is not leather. Rawhide can't be used for leather, and it's not, uh, I guess that probably one of the commercial purposes of rawhide would be for lacing other things, right? Do they, do they still lace things with rawhide or what? Um, they make dog bones out of it. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> food items. Yeah. Those aren't nearly as good for your dog as just raw bones. You guys are giving your dogs pieces of rawhide. You'll notice they soften up and get kind of snot-like after the dog messes with them for, you know, five or ten minutes. That's not a – just give the dog a bone, okay? <laughs> raw bones. Yeah. So, yeah, so – the vegetable tanning currently refers to a tanning process that uses, um, you know, plant plant matter right. for the tanning. You know, bark tannins was the the most common. Now I think they, they they've incorporated some other stuff because it's not practical to use bark tannin for no for everything. no. I'm sure they've got commercially synthetically produced tannins mm-hmm. and other things. I have used the old alum tanning method for mm-hmm. curing hides myself. Yeah. Back when I used to mess around with stuff like that. I've tanned stuff myself with uh, the old uh, alum, which is aluminum sulfate and, and sodium chloride solution. You just take a take warm water and put as much salt in it, table salt in it, and just stir it up and dissolve as much of it into the solution as you can. And then you put alum in it, and you these are, these are ground products and you that'll also go into solution and as much solution as it'll hold in the warm water you stir into it and then when it cools off some of it'll you know will crystallize out precipitate out onto the bottom of the vessel but then you take a a fleshed hide with the fur on it and put it in there and leave it for two weeks make sure it stays submerged and thing pull it out after two weeks it's tanned it's tanned leather. Well, the hair follicles just scrape the hair, off. After? No, the hair it is sets the hair. Oh, okay. So if you want to, if you want to make a pelt, you want to preserve okay. a pelt, and that's how they. Some version of that is how they'll do a, a fur. Okay. Right, but that's how I've done it. It's easy to do. It's easy to make a homemade version of this of this uh, tanning brine, and it works like that. I would imagine that that commercial. Furs are prepared with a similar, probably a lot more efficient way to do it than that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they have uh, faster ways to do it, but that's probably not the equivalent of a vegetable tan product. No, I, I don't know how the two would compare. I think the whole purpose of the whole process, though, is to cross-link the proteins in the skin so that they're permanently stuck together. It's not oxidation, I don't guess, but it's a... Yeah, and, and a, yeah, and and also to remove the moisture and replace it with something else. These right. will get packed in with oils and waxes, and right. sole leather actually gets some clay added into it. As oh, well. really? Mm-hmm. What does that do? Uh, it it helps it to just be more firm, more durable. Right. You know, scuff resist scuff that sort of thing. Yeah, something that you're going to be walking around on rocks or you know whatever surface right. you might walk on. It helps it. Yeah, hold leather up wears out eventually, doesn't it? That's the problem with. I used to wear leather-soled boots all the time, but you get tired of having to resole them all the time. So, <laughs> the neoprene is what I go with now. So, uh, 
What is the what's the other process that's predominant in the leather making industry? Though? Yeah, so so the two big commercial ones are the veg tan and chrome tanning. Right. So in, instead of using organic matter to do the tanning, they use a chromium salts, uh, and it's it's actually the most uh, common method um, of tanning now. I've read that over eighty percent of all leather that's tanned it uses chrome tanning at this point so chromium salts well that's probably similar to my alum and yeah it, it, and table salt method yeah probably does about the same thing the difference with them is they would go through a, a liming process before that to remove all the hair and everything before tanning it wouldn't be for making pelts or anything right um so yeah, the, those are the big two, the veg tan and the chrome tanning. The, the reason I think that chrome tanning has, has caught on the way it has is because it's so much quicker. Uh, oh, really? How long does it take the two processes in comparison? So the vegetable tanning, this is going to go into a tanning liquor in a, just in a large vat for six weeks, sometimes, sometimes a little more, sometimes mm -hmm. a little less. Um, and they have to be checked the whole time. They got to pull it out, make sure that the, the tanning liquor is, you know, evenly contacting all the skins and everything. Um, and the, the chrome tanning, they put this in a drum, they spin it, and it only takes two to three days. So oh, it's, really? a, it's, a, it's a much faster process. So it stays in the drum spinning for two to three days? Yes. In motion? Yes. That's interesting. Yeah. So that ensures uniform exposure to the to the tanning right. product right? right right but two to three days yeah that's why that's why <laughs> vodka is cheaper than bourbon <laughs> <laughs> time time is money yeah right. I, I was thinking about some of the different vegetable tanning processes in terms of how similar it is or how analogous it is almost to making whiskey whereas mm -hmm. whiskey you start you know with the same raw material every time this barley malt mm -hmm. and then through your own secret recipe you can come up with something that is wildly different in the end right. and also depending on how it's aged and all those different things so it seems to be very similar um, with tanning leather i've tried to read everything i could find about it the only thing you could do more would be to just go start visit visiting tanneries right. and uh and seeing their process Right. Just to, if know, they would even event. let you in, if they would let you, because <laughs> there, there, there's probably a lot of uh, there's probably so much tribal knowledge that they oh, have, sure and you know, people have been making leather for a hell of a long time. Mm -hmm. Been making leather as long as they've been making weapons, you know. So it's one of the oldest manufacturing industries in the human experience. Yep. Uh, what is all right? So oil tanned. I, I'm familiar with that term. Where does that fit into this? Oil tanned? Um, I'm not sure that that wouldn't just be a veg tan product that then goes through a milling process afterwards. So what they'll do after they have tanned the leather, so it's been cured, they'll put it in a mill, which is another large drum. They'll throw in oil and waxes and, and different things like that. And then they'll roll it for you know several hours up to several days, depending on um, what temper and hand feel they're trying to accomplish with the leather. Mm -hmm. And uh, I believe that's what, what oil tanning would be. Um, right. So it's really not formally a different tanning process. It's a, no, I don't believe it's so. It's a finishing process. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, like that older belt I've got that I handed you, I, that was sold at the time as a product called harness leather. Mm -hmm. what, is, what is that? 
harness leather, they actually take beef tallow and they pack it in by hand. Really? Yeah. And then apparently the, the hide gets so waxy and so full of fat that it won't even feed through the industrial machines they have that are supposed to squeeze excess back out. Wow. So I've watched videos of some poor guy with a hand tool <laughs> going over mm-hmm. hides by hand to squeeze out the, the excess beef tallow. And that is a obviously a pre- preservation process, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to use a piece of leather in real horrible conditions like on the back of a horse, right, where it's wet and sweaty and salt and scuff and all this other stuff. Yeah, it's 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 a natural product, beef tallow, so it's not going to harm you know the skin of the animal that's wearing mm-hmm. it. Uh, it also makes it somewhat waterproof, so you don't have to just ride in the sunshine. Mm-hmm. Right. Yep. So uh, all of the pretty much all of the material that you deal with is is vegetable tent and the one ply belt that you see right here is just one thickness and how do you order it this thick or do you skive it down to this thickness when we, you're preparing it we ordered in that thickness and this so is what that is six uh, or seven millimeters yeah it's about that they right. they weigh it out in ounces it's just an old way of measuring the thickness of leather. So they'd call that 15, 17 ounce. It could be anywhere from 15 to 17 ounces. Per, and Per 15, 17 ounces per length or per square inch, uh, it'd be square the, foot. It'd be right. the whole hide. So um, the hide, after it had gone through its tanning processes, they'll run it through a splitter or a leveler that'll mm-hmm. take the entire hide down to a single thickness. And an ounce is just a 64th of an inch. So it's between... 15 and 17 64ths of an inch which uh, it's easier to think in millimeters at that point it really is yeah, yeah. six or seven millimeters so it there's, there's an archaic me- measuring yeah there's another one called yeah. irons that oh i've heard that referred to when we're talking about harness leather mm-hmm. seven iron yeah like if you're buying if you're buying stirrup leathers for your english saddle that'll come in iron mm-hmm. and i guess that's also a term for the thickness yeah, and right. I, I'd have to look up the conversion because it doesn't ever come up with what we're doing. But yeah, mm-hmm. it, it would map straight to a, a certain thickness. One iron would equal you know, mm-hmm. whatever. So this is just th- so you buy this. This comes in off the truck, this thick, ready to use. Yes, and then you'll cut it. Yeah, and we and uh, and in the in the in the case of this one ply. It's a fairly simple manufacturing process. You're going to have to skive down the buckle bend. Right. Right there. And how much do you take off of that? That looks like that's down to about four. Yeah, that's exactly so right. You, you take about half of the thickness, a little less than half the thickness off right. of that, so that it'll bend around the buckle. Cut the slot. And by I'm talking about this thickness right here. Then they cut the slot for the, for the pin of the buckle and then assemble it with these good rivets right and this is called the keeper this is the belt keeper is that what y'all call it too keeper or loop this is the this is traditionally called the keeper this thing right here and it's a looks like a not quite exactly the same no it's the same thickness as the as the rest of the belt and i'm beating my microphone up here i know um and then you rivet these things together. Now tell us about these good rivets. 
because these are high quality rivets that uh and i've already talked about the little skinny ones that come apart real easily these things are lifetime installations right yeah now i've used i've seen in fact i've I've used them myself and i've got several belts that are assembled with what are called chicago screws Mm -hmm. uh, which are uh it's a it's a if you got one with a chicago screw those are those are the old rivets there right chicago screws kind of look like this uh but they're actually a threaded device with a flat surface area on one side and then a usually a flathead screw on the other side and it it threads into a a a female side and it just sucks the leather together like that and it's a nice method of assembly why do you not use chicago screws in favor of this type of rivet and what's this called well a screw can come undone right. for one thing so you've added a sure. liability there um and really you'd never have to take this area apart you know if you if you needed to change the buckle or something like mm-hmm. that for some reason these can be drilled out um but that's that's the only way that you know it would come apart i just don't see any reason to have screws there and right you don't have to worry about your belt coming apart on you sure and i and, are, and honestly i've seen chicago screws on dress belts more frequently okay because you might want to change the buckle out on a dress belt. that makes sense okay right um these are called two-piece mate rivets so one piece mate rivets mate mate rivets there's m-a-t-e m-a-t-e there's a there's a, there's a male and a female side the uh the male side functions the same way that a, a normal pop rivet does right so it's it's got a mandrel with a shank going through it when you pull that shank out the mandrel collapses down expands outward and in a pop rivet if you just had two pieces of metal that you were trying to rivet together when that piece that you're pulling through expands out it pulls those two pieces of metal together mm-hmm. and then they can never come apart and that doesn't really work for leather because um you know, metal is not going to deform when that tries to pull through, whereas leather can. So these, you just put a cap on top of that pop rivet. So when you pull it, it expands into the cap. And now you've got two pieces that are permanently joined together. And that's mm-hmm. that's the two-piece mate rivet. And it's made for industrial applications. Like we could look up, uh, you know, a shear and a tensile rating, you know, for these guys. Which, are they aluminum? They're aluminum, yeah. Right. So they don't they don't corrode. They don't, don't corrode. Rust. Don't make a a uh, pretty green patina around the <laughs> rivet like rivets and burrs do. Yeah. But you know these things are they're a they're a damn secure fastening method. And then uh, for this single ply, we're basically done with it. Now there's this one other, is there's one other thing I'd point out in that area. Okay. That's not, I've got a question in a second about both of these. It's been on my mind for quite some time watch your microphone there yeah. so like in this area right here it's important to punch these holes such that when you feed the keeper through and put this together you don't end up with a giant bulge you don't end up with a giant oh, bulge see what you're doing on so, the on the bottom so side this side's going to be longer than that dimension between those two punches exactly. is longer than this one right right and you do okay. that because this is what's going to be digging into your stomach and right. you, you want the least amount of extra material right there um, <clears throat> as possible 
And that was one of the example belts that I was going to show you. This is one of the samples we got. <laughs> yeah, when we you were can first clearly see the belts. problem. Yeah, right. They obviously weren't even thinking about this at all. So right. that was that's just one of the little details that we tried to think about and incorporate that into oh, the design of these point. belts. Uh, so I guess that dimension is going to vary with the thickness of the leather. It doesn't a little we, bit. Or not not. not you a, got a formula down for this now? I guess you do. Yeah, and and we've got you know one single die made that punches out all eight holes plus right, the slot right. the, all at the, the same. And time. then you just skive that down and and it assembles right in that shape. Correct. Right. Yeah, and you know theoretically it probably ought to vary a little bit with the thickness of the leather, but it doesn't vary enough that it, right. it it's worth having a whole so new set of dies made. This die was used for this and that. Right. Okay. Right. All right. That's interesting. Now, here's the question that I've got. I've messed around with leather for years and years. How do you get these damn things so nice and straight? How do you get the cut straight? <laughs> How do you make these edges perfectly uniform? How does this thing end up looking like a, an absolute, you know, ruler? How do you How do you do that? That's the secret. <laughs> We're asking. We, uh, we right now we actually have our supplier strap cut these for us, so we'll order however many hides, and they'll run it through uh, you know this giant machine with rotating cutting wheels on it. Mm. We've actually got one at our shop, and we have used it, but right now it's actually more uh, economical in terms of time to have them go ahead and, and cut it for us. Do they and cut then, it to length, or do you just get a hide length? Yes, yeah, it, it comes out and it'll have jagged edges on on each end and it'll just be whatever length the, the mm -hmm. hide was right um, and they do pretty good they'll they'll start out and cut a straight edge um, right. down one edge and then they'll have a guide that they feed it through and then we've got a fixture at our shop if we get them in and there's any more than a half inch of bend in one we'll right. case it so we'll soak it in water and we'll hammer it down into this fixture that is exactly three inches wide, leave it overnight and let it dry. And once it comes out of that, it's more or less perfectly straight. Right. So we can straighten them if they, if they don't start out that way. Right. So basically these come in pre-cut as blanks. I would imagine what they do is they cut these under pressure and then, and then the straight edge, you know, makes a nice straight cut so that it doesn't deviate according to the, pressure of the blade going through the leather if it's not you'd probably have to hold it now right yeah under a lot of pressure to do that right well it actually it the, works, the, the cutter will cut multiple straps at a time so that oh you've seen it oh you've we, seen it done? We've, we've got one at our shop oh that will do the the yeah. same multi-layer oh mm -hmm. really that's cool. yeah we can cut i think it's eight three inch straps at one time and so at that point you've all you're almost the whole width of the hide Mm -hmm. if, if you're strap cutting that many at once. So you don't really have a problem with the work trying to turn on you based on that because you've got so many cutters going into it at once. Right. And you're right. stabilizing the one adjacent to the... Right. Right. And, and those cutters are just bearing down on a plastic roller that's underneath that. Mm -hmm. So there's not really anything to do other than just feed it in through as straight as you possibly can. Right. Um, but yeah, so once, once... Have you ever bought a side... Uh, a whole side of of top grain. Yeah, we've we bought. That's how it a, comes in, and it's 
is that uniform in thickness when you get it? Yeah, more or less. It, it's supposed to be within that 15, 17 ounce, you know, whatever right. that is, a couple sixty-fourths of an inch. Well, the thing may be this big and, right, you know, nine feet long. Right. That sort of thing. And, you know, not to say we don't ever get stuff in that's obviously too thin or too thick or something like that. And we can split it down if it's too thick, if it's too thin, make a deadlift jack out of it. Yeah. <laughs> something like that. <laughs> Jay. Uh, so, well, that's that's the, the cutting process that I was concerned with. Now, yes, about you've got the edges four too. perfectly the, uniform. Yeah, let's talk, all right, let's talk about the edges first. These look like they've been sanded. Is that correct? Is it a these, sanding process or is it a... The, these have been on the, uh, the double ply. When you glue these two layers together, it's impossible to get them to line up exactly perfect. Right. So we'll just come back with a drum sander and go down go down both edges but it still remains perfectly straight how did you do that well usually it's off just in one direction a lot of times what will happen is maybe one strap is just ever so slightly thicker than the other Mm -hmm. one so when you're gluing it together you want to make sure that you align that one side perfectly leave all your mismatch on the other side so you don't have to do one side corrected for yeah, you've only got to correct correct the unevenness on one side, and then you may have a little bit of a rough edge where you got a little glue squeeze out or something like that. Right. Plus, you want it to look the same, so you just go ahead and sand the other side too. Right. Um, and then there are tools called edge bevelers, uh, just little hand tools that we run down the edge to round it over, mm-hmm. so you don't have a sharp edge. Right. I've seen those. Yeah. Looks like a little little curvy thing with a blade on it. Right. Uh, how do you sew? This the 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 stitching on these things is absolutely beautiful and uniform. How's what kind of machine do you use for that? We've got a couple of uh, union lock stitch machines. So a normal sewing machine is just going to have a single needle. It just punches up and down, and a presser foot feeds the work. Uh, to sew this material in this thickness, we use something called a needle in all sewing machine. So instead of a needle coming down and punching into the work, there's an awl there. And its right. only job is to come down, punch right. the hole. Punch. An awl is a tool that it's, it right. looks like an ice pick, like right. a short ice pick. It's thicker than a needle. It is. It's always it's a not, gauge thicker. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't have a hole for the thread. It just right. punches a hole. Right. And then on our machine, the needle is then fed up through the bottom, through the hole that the awl just punched. And you've got a mechanism that will actually loop the string, the thread, around the needle. The needle doesn't have a hole through it. It's just got a barb. Mm-hmm. So you're hooking it through there, and then the needle descends back down. And the two machines we've got, it's hard to tell exactly how old your particular machine is. The patent for them was in the early 1900s. Uh, that was when this machine was designed. Hmm. And we think ours are probably from the 1920s, the original castings. Where did you get them? A company called uh, Campbell Randall. They're in, they're in Texas. This thread is, is what? It's very stout yeah it's a uh, uh, it's a synthetic it's a polyester thread uh, would this be the same kind of thread that shoes are assembled with yeah it would be right most likely okay M- most thread today is polyester cotton thread will just fray over time the, yeah, poly- the polyester too yeah the polyester just holds up a lot better and, right. it's, and it sews better especially in these really heavy duty machines um, if you tried to run just any thread through them, you're just going to keep breaking thread. Right. And um, so. And what glue is used? We use a uh, 
a contact cement. So you'll Just take a contact cement's wonderful stuff, isn't it? Yeah. It's weird stuff it's, if you hadn't used it before because you I used use to, it all the time, yeah. man. It's been around for a hundred years, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, hell, I remember my dad using it, you know, fifty years ago. He didn't really know how, but he he, he contact cement's interesting stuff. It really is. You paint both sides of the leather with it and let it dry. And yeah, let my, it dry completely. Which, let it dry completely, and yeah. which can take at least twenty minutes. But if you let this this stuff sit overnight, it's uh, it's fine. Mm-hmm. And then once it's thoroughly dry, you put the two sides together, and they're not That's com- it. <laughs> they're not coming apart. Yeah, it's a permanent assembly, and and contact cement is really amazing stuff. So those of you whose running shoes are continually coming apart what you do is is like the the sole comes off usually at the toe uh pull it apart go ahead and break it apart a little bit more take some contact cement they sell it in small bottles and there'll be a little swab inside the bottle that you can paint both sides of it on there with paint it pry the thing open with a little toothpick or a, a match or something like that so that it will dry not in contact and leave it apart 20 minutes, take the match out, put the thing back together, and it's fixed. It won't come apart. You can repair it. Don't just throw your shoes away because they start to separate because they're easy to fix with contact cement. And you guys are using just plain old contact cement, right? Yep, yep. It's it's kind of nasty stuff. That's the our least favorite day in the shop because you got to put on a mask and everything, the it's, amount we're using. I think the solvent is MEK, isn't it? Or some uh, it's, high it's volatile either, yeah, it's a, yeah. acetone. Or, and we have to thin it down to get it to spread. So we've got even more of that solvent in the air right. due to the thinner we're using. So Have you got exhaust fans and stuff to try to keep the building from exploding? Or <laughs> we've, we've got fans and everything that right. we set up. Uh, we probably should have a, a little bit more in the way of like a vent hood or something like that long term. Right. But uh, it, it, it's working for right now, the lower mm-hmm. volumes that we're doing. Just keep that mask on. And how do you punch the holes? That's a separate die. So for our three-inch belts, we've got the die that does the buckle end, and we've got the die that does the build end. So uh, there's a die that sits on here. It's um, the longest die that our press will accept, but it cuts out this end shape and all 11 holes at the same time. Right. So this is an 11-hole belt. So when when you order the belt uh, from dominion you're going to be ordering your waist size to the middle hole all right so when you order a 38 that's 38 this thing right here is 38 and then if you lose weight you gain weight you're fine right it allows you quite a bit of flexibility in terms of the uh the sizing of the belt and that hole looks like about a Seven sixteenths. What is that thing? It's a nice that's big a, fat one. It's a five sixteenths, but five it's got a, it's got a little bit of taper to it, so it's going <coughs> to look bigger on this side than it actually is on the on the back side where you right. feed the prong through. I have I had a cheap belt several years ago, uh, and I think it was a combination of uh, of the leather not being quite the consistency it should have should have been. It might have been a split. Mm-hmm. Might have been made out of a split or two layers of split or something like that. And too thin a buckle pin. 
Right. And it cut. Right. It actually cut all the way through. Right. What do you think the problem was? Stress is force divided by area. So the bearing stress on one of these holes as that pin gets smaller and smaller mm-hmm. is going to go up and up. Right. Until eventually you've got a knife edge basically trying to pull through there. You've so. got a cheese wire, don't you? Yeah. So if you uh, you guys have calculated the the size of the hole, the curve that size makes, and the size of the of the buckle pin, mm-hmm. and these don't tear. They don't. We've never had anyone, uh, you know, that they might ovalize slightly to yeah, begin with, you, you and that's deal because with that as long as yeah. it's not cutting through the right through the punch yeah and, that, and that's just due to the fact that the hole is punched vertically the prong is trying to go through at an angle so mm-hmm. it's going to deform slightly uh on the top and bottom but it should stabilize have you thought ever thought about angling the holes toward the, the buckle pin i talked to talked to you about that the first time i met you right <laughs> yeah i um, do remember that what did you decide about that well we're still trying to figure out logistically how you would do that in volumes. Well, you'd have and to. So when you when you take this die, is it a stamp? It is. A straight vertical stamp. Vertical you know? stamp. So yeah. it'd be, yeah, that would be kind of a problem. It, you'd almost have to come in and, and create each hole at a, with a separate process. You would, you'd probably need a stamp that was guided by linear guides on an angle so that when you put it in the press, it actually slid right. down and, and, and came back up. Oh, but it would yeah. be a, it would be an engineering, uh, feet to to design and build and something nobody like that. does that right not that i know of you can right. punch you can punch holes by hand you can set this on a wedge and get your punch just right and you can tap them through mm-hmm. but you can't really do that consistently enough right. to, to no make the not belts if you like have we're, to do it each one by hand they're gonna no. be all over the belt and last how do you how do you do the starting strength logo on the tongue down here We've got a, uh, a brass embossing stamp that we had made from the artwork file that you guys gave us. And we've got just a, an ink pad, you know, similar to what you'd use a rubber stamp with. Mm-hmm. So we'll put the dye that's the color we need on the pad, get just enough on, of it on there so you can put the stamp in it. We've got a fixture that holds this belt just so and guides the stamp so that it's consistent every time. Mm-hmm. And then we'll put in a press and just lightly hit it. So it just very slightly embosses that into it, and well, it's a nice clean color. stamp. Yeah, it, it's it's in the leather. It's embossed in the leather, and the the ink is not running around. It's a real nice looking, clean job. It's a very high stress thing to do though, because usually the belt's completed at that point, and yeah, then the I only mean, thing left to do is screw up the screw stamp. This thing. <laughs> right. So, right. But Katie does a good job on that. She... <laughs> well. Now, here's another real important question. One of the hallmarks of a cheap belt is a cheap buckle. A cheap roller buckle with a split roller. Right. Those damn things are a maintenance problem. I have several, a bunch of belts in my gym. You guys that have been in the gym understand that I've got lots and lots of belts in the gym. And we, we have them in there for everybody to use. And uh, we've had some of them in there for 20, 25 years. And one of the things that always happens to a cheap split roller is it will start to flare out. Right. At the end of the, at the, end of the roller, it'll flare out around the, around the 
right at the, the edges end, usually. The bend of the buckle, yeah. and it will start to come apart right at the split and will make a nice little pointy thing for you to slice your thumb open on. Not to mention scratch your belt. And scratch right. your belt up and, you know, in your gym bag, takes, you know, pokes holes in your shirts and stuff like that. So these things are a solid roller. Where do you get these? Uh, those come from the same people that supply our leather. It's a company called Weaver Leather in Ohio. They're a leather distributor. They're not a tannery, mm-hmm. but they, they bring in leather, and um, um, they, they sell us everything we need as far as that goes. And where do they get these things? It's, it's uh, interesting that they know they need a solid roller. Mm-hmm. These are it is, well, It's a three-inch solid roller buckle, hard to find. I it, wonder if it, they, they it, probably it was in the beginning. I bet. They have a supplier that makes them for them. It's a, it's an overseas supplier that makes them for them. Uh, they made a four-inch roller, and it took a lot of convincing to get them to carry a three-inch version. Um, in the beginning, we just had to make these massive orders because they would do it all at one time. It had a five-month lead time oh, coming from overseas, so you'd have to order a year's supply of buckles right. just about at a time. Um, we finally convinced them that uh, – people are coming around to the three inch belt and that they're going to have lots of lots and lots of business selling these things so they're they're finally coming around to they're going to stock them as a stock item yeah and we don't have to have pallets and pallets of buckles <laughs> sitting in the shop another thing about the buckle that is important is the slot cut in the bend here there is nothing more annoying than than a company that cuts that slot too wide so that the pin wiggles too much back and forth and makes it hard for you to find the hole when you're trying to tighten your belt right before you go onto the bar. Nothing is more irritating than that. And the width of that slot is is important in terms of your being able to use the belt quickly and efficiently. So how do you... Uh, determine how wide the slot's going to be i guess at this point your die did, yeah, was there a lot of trial and error on that or there was cutting them cutting them out with an exacto knife and, and just making a bunch of samples and, yeah right. measuring exactly what you did and putting the thing together because the other thing you can do is get it slightly too tight and that's really bad too because mm-hmm. you can bind that up completely by it being just a little bit too tight so it's a it's a fine line between having it be, you know, unusable either because it's too loose or too tight. Right. Yeah. No, these are just exactly right. The if it, I've never had one that was too tight, but I can assume it just wouldn't it has to flop quickly. Right? And if it was too tight, it would probably quickly wear out to the point where it would Oh, here's a that's, that's one that's Here's too tight. a sample. <laughs> oh, yeah. Through the middle it's not so bad, but at the extents it's uh you know why? You know why this one's too tight? They didn't cut the slot long enough. Yeah, yeah it rotates yeah. around. It's hitting it, just the it, edge of the it slot. Rams into the edge of the slot right there. And this is what you can expect if you just go on Amazon and order the random thirty-dollar belt. Yeah, this it, is a piece of Chinese junk, apparently. Uh, at least that one is. Uh, at least that see, one is made out of the, the top the, green leather. See the but, underside of the of the keeper. See exactly what Blake was talking about earlier. Look what they did at the top. It works fine at the top, but the side that lays against you—it's that. Just this is upside down, basically. Yeah, 
And this is the one that was made out of the split leather where I had to cut into it to find that out because they painted the edges and then... Oh, they did. You probably can't see it on the camera, but inside the buckle area, they, they painted it brown or they dyed it brown somehow. So they would you would think you were getting a top grain mm-hmm. leather, but really you weren't and you wouldn't know any better unless you cut into it or you just tore through it eventually. How about that? And then, yeah, that's two, that's two plies, isn't it? It's yeah. It's I think it's two plies of uh, sure split two, leather. It looks yeah, just it exactly. Like you can't see that on the camera, but this is two plies of split leather. And then you know they yeah oh yeah you can stick your thumbnail right down in there and pry it open. That is two plies of split. And then you can see I've done videos before where I take a screwdriver and just pop these rivets off that they have on here. These are mm-hmm. decorative rivets. You know that's not something that belongs on a, a weightlifting belt. Um, and then. <laughs> One of the the last ones that I, I saw was this guy. It's important that that keeper be sized correctly, or you end up with this situation where you buckle yeah. the belt, and now you can't get it. The... Won't physically <coughs> won't physically go in the keeper. So well, and the keeper can't be too close to the bend right for the buckle either it's got to be far enough back down the belt to where it yeah it's got to actually functions it's got to be far enough back from here and it's got to be tall enough so yeah, it's not got to be enough slop in the thing to, right. to allow you to put it on quickly right oh but look at this this one is made of genuine leather that's code for split leather <laughs> Gen- but it's genuine leather see the picture yeah. of our friend the cow <laughs> yes genuine leather so you're, you're dealing with a lot of companies out there that are not obviously not even trying their belt on no, to make sure that it works. They're not, um, they're not lifters. No. They've never used the product. They don't care. Right. They made an order of 10000 from a factory in rural China. Or Pakistan. Or Pakistan or India right. or Oklahoma. You know, we're just you know primitive conditions. <laughs> yeah, and I, I should say too, it's it's not that it it can't be done because that's after all what I did in the beginning was have mm-hmm. one sourced, but man, you've really got to stay on top of them because they'll send you a couple of samples that are perfectly, perfectly fine. fine. You, you've got and some then in your a gym. thousand belts get here and they're all wrong. And what the hell are you going to do with? Well, and you that's know? that's exactly what happened to us. I'm sure. Year two into this, we got a, a thousand belts in right before Christmas time. It was a, uh, it was right at what Thanksgiving, yeah. And uh, every single one of them had rust on the buckles when we got it in. So we spent rust on the buckles. Every one of them. What were the buckles made of? Well, it was a plated steel, but it was obviously an inferior plating process. Yeah. And they came over, you know, they slow boated them over. And after sitting in all that humid, right. salty air and not being sealed up correctly, we had a thousand belts at Christmas time that we couldn't sell the first one. Oh, God. Oh, and so, well, so what <laughs> we, do you do with it? well, we got them sending us buckles. We also found some people that were willing to sell us some of their buckles that they had in stock. And we drilled out all the rivets, took every single belt apart, oh and put new hardware on that it. That really sounds like a lot of fun. It sucked. Yeah. <laughs> it really sucked. <laughs> and you, and you, you don't make any money. 
on the whole deal. No, and get it, and and that was do that much stuff to it to fix it up so they're actually available for sale. And even then, you know, they had other problems with them too. As we're taking them apart, you're seeing all the other shortcuts that are being taken. You know, as you dig into it. So even with replacing the hardware, we might find something else about the belt that wasn't something we could fix at that point. Mm-hmm. So that was sort of the last straw <coughs> with, with those guys. It just sourcing that kind of thing overseas, unless you're willing to go over there uh, and manage it on the right. ground, it, it looked to me like it was unmanageable. Well, so. and, and this is one of the reasons why we print all of our books in the United States up in Michigan. If we... And, and the guys we use are great. They have never never sent us a shipment of books with an upside-down signature. Nothing has ever been wrong with these guys. It's DRC in yeah. Michigan Data Reproductions Corporation in Michigan, just to brag on them. They do a great job. But we can save a whole bunch of money on our unit cost in by having theory. all this done in China. <laughs> Yeah, in theory. In theory. In theory. <laughs> in practice, I'd rather spend the extra dollar. Right. Because if we had to send a load of books back, that'd be a giant nightmare if they would even take them back. And if we we got a, you know, order in of 10,000 books, anytime we'd place an order like that, we are at the end of the previous inventory and we need them now. Right. And they came in and they're defective. If I've got to send them back, I'd much rather send them back to Michigan than than to communist China. So uh, we've always stayed domestic. So you guys are doing all of this stuff is is made in the United States, right? Yep. Yep. Except for the buckle. Except for the buckle. And, you know, probably the rivets too. I mean, just about anything you buy today that's made out of metal, is that metal is going to be sourced overseas. and. You know, it's one of those things. You try to do the best you can. It, how far down the rabbit hole do you go with the Made in America right. thing? Your hand tools, some of those are not going to be Made in America. Right. Any power tools you have. So right. you do the best you can. Well, and, and you do what's necessary for the quality of the product. If you mm-hmm. can find a quality roller buckle that's made in China, right? then why worry too much about it? But if you know it's a part that you can't get the quality in that you want you better go ahead and source it where you know the thing is going to not cost you a bunch of time and money to replace it if it comes in and fails. Right. And it's not that, you know, U.S. manufacturers never screw up. It's not that we've never screwed up, but people know where we live. Right, right. <laughs> you know, it, there, there's, some, there's somebody you can strangle It's with. easier to come beat you up right. than it would be to go to communist <laughs> China and beat the guy. Yeah, at, at the end of the day, right. they're over there, you're over here. If right. they say buzz off, yep. what, what are you, you really going to do? Pacific Ocean makes it stick, you know. Yeah. So uh, what we end up with, though, is as far as I'm concerned, this is, this is the best belt in the industry if you are looking for a natural leather belt. You know, I'm not going to poor mouth my buddy Dean Best. Dean makes a great product. You know, and I know he makes it makes yep. a great product. But we had these things made like this for a very particular reason. I, I don't like a suede belt nearly as well as I like a plain leather belt. I don't like the way it feels. I don't like the way it ages. Suede is not as durable long term as this belt. You'll buy this belt. And if you don't gain weight or lose weight out of it, you will use this the rest of your life. It is a lifetime investment. 
I'm sorry about the no repeat business. So maybe the guy <laughs> will tell his brother-in-law about it, and he'll buy one from you too. Because yeah. you buy this belt one time, it lasts the rest of your life. Or like you said, people tend to either blow up or shrink, so maybe they'll need another one. It's what people do, you know. People will. In fact, if you buy the thing correctly and size for the middle hole, uh, this is you're quite likely to just buy one belt. And I know $175 for this quality product sounds like a hell of a lot of money. If you don't want a quality belt, don't buy one. Go on Amazon and get a cheap piece of junk. Be my guest. But if you're serious about your training, this starting strength belt or this starting strength belt is what you want. I think you ought to have one of each, and I'll tell you the reason for that. When I, when I bench press, when I press, I like the way the single ply feels better. And I can't really even tell you why I like it that way, but it just it feels better to me on when I'm doing a – especially when I'm doing a bench press. You're not laying can, on it? No, I, I can get this real tight. Okay. This thing tightens quickly. Yeah. And when you're laying down on a bench, you're going to be one hole tighter than your squat or your deadlift adjustment. This thing goes on quickly and easily, and I can lay back against this thing and tighten it way down. And it's and I can't get I can get this one tighter than I can get this one. So me being wealthy and and powerful, I've got one of each, and I use them all. Use both of them all the time, and I advise you to do the same thing. This is one hundred and seventy-five dollars. This is ninety dollars. Ninety dollars. Right. The orders are filled quickly and efficiently, and these things for this type of belt. This is the best belt in the world. And Blake intends to keep it that way. If you've got any feedback about your belt for him, contact him at dominionstrength.com. Yep, dominionstrength.com. Email us, <coughs> email us uh, team at dominionstrength.com. Uh, Instagram at dominionstg and Dominion Strength Training on Facebook. You can get, get in touch with us anyway. You can get in touch with him off of our website, startingstrength.com. You look under the equipment tab. And the link to their website is there. Thanks for coming Absolutely. to visit. Enjoyed it. Thanks Blake. for having me. And it's been enlightening, educational. Hope you guys enjoyed the, the talk about leather. And uh, we appreciate you being here for Starting Strength Radio. We'll see you next time.